right, we're on part five of our uh, series that we've been doing on uh, the kingdom of God. And so I just want to get right into it and talk about a kingdom grace that has been afforded to us that I feel like we know very little about. And I'll just tell you a little bit uh, with me. I, um, you know, this past year, of course, we were laboring for unity among churches in the city across racial lines and denominational lines. And, and uh, that effort has culminated with a movement called One Race. And of course, we all know about it. We've all participated. We were at Stone Mountain together in a solemn assembly with 23,000 other of our friends. And the Lord continues to move in churches around the city under this end. Well, when we came back from, from uh, this one race Stone Mountain, I was home for a day and then I immediately got on a plane and went to China. And uh, I did a, a, a several days of training there with house church leaders in China. But you know, it's interesting because I'm in China and when I was there, the Lord starts instructing me on the issue of kingdom unity or oneness. And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit was saying, you think you know something about unity because you've done this unity movement, but guess what? You don't know anything, ha ha, you know. And so, okay. And so just taking a posture, again, of a student and allowing the Holy Spirit over those next several days just to sort of unpack truths and, and uh, really to, to augment thoughts that I'd had and, and, and color in some things that I hadn't understood before. And so really for that time that I was in China, the Lord spoke to me about two issues, oneness and peace. And I preached several weeks ago on peace. And today I wanna speak about kingdom oneness. I wanna talk about this thing that the Lord has purchased for us in the cross and this issue of oneness. Um, so, you know, in the kingdom of God, we've been talking about culture. We've talked about, uh, you know, the, the way that we're supposed to operate within the kingdom, the story of the kingdom, who we are in the kingdom, and, and, and things that, are, that keep us out of the kingdom. And, and today I want to talk about an enablement, a grace in the kingdom. And there are many kingdom graces. There's a love that we have in the kingdom that you can't get any other way, right? Once you say yes to Jesus and you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom of God, the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. And when you got born again, when you entered the kingdom of God, you probably found something going on in your heart about love that you just, you just didn't know before. You, you cared for people in a way that you just hadn't before. You were patient in a way that you, you just hadn't. We always, get, we always grow in this, but this is a, a, a revelation that just, it just happens to you because of the new birth, because of being in the kingdom of God, because of being born again. So we have love, we have a kingdom peace that's not like what the world gives, Jesus said, right? That he gives us peace not like what the world has. Uh, there's a variety of things that are kingdom graces that by virtue of being in the kingdom of God, we have been given them to us by the Lord that we would walk in them and operate in them. And uh, we tend to talk a lot about, in non-denominational churches, about kingdom power, the manifestation of the power of God, the Holy Spirit ministering, healing, and deliverance, and all sorts of things through us. Uh, and we tend to not talk about this issue of unity and oneness. We tend to think of unity and oneness as a sidebar issue, and the Lord has continued to bring it front and center to me. And so that's what I want to deal with today, is this, this topic of kingdom oneness, this unusual place that you and I share together as being one in Christ Jesus. 
That is where we are and what we are right now. We are actually one in Christ Jesus. Now, the manifestation of that is it's very mild, to be quite honest, in the church today. There's not a lot of oneness manifest in the church across the nation and the nations. I had a, I had a pastor from Ecuador that I met when I was in Mexico, and he said the church uh, across cities, you know, from this city to this city and this nation to this nation, a lot of times they share oneness more than the church does within its own city. Because we get so territorial when it's our little place. It, it shouldn't be that we love the brother that is far enough away that he can't mess with us, but we don't, you know, we don't love the brother that's right next to us. That's not real, is it? That's false. And so what I want to do is I want to take us from, uh, again, Jesus' prayer in John 17, and then I want to take us through some of Paul's teaching on oneness and really get this clear about how critical of an issue standing in the oneness that Jesus has purchased, how critical of an issue that is for the church. It's not a sidebar issue. So let's take a look at John 17. And we're gonna do this again. I know I preached on John 17 prior to One Race Stone Mountain, but the Lord goes, let's just tweak that up a little bit there, little buddy. Fix that. So I'm not changing anything I said. I'm just going to elaborate in a, in a much different way. So let's look at John 17 again, and let's look at Jesus' prayer. And I love these words. They, they minister to me quite deeply. Verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And man, I absolutely love that thought that there's Jesus right before the cross praying the deepest desires of his heart and he's praying to the Father and he says, Father, I don't just pray for these right here with me, but I pray for everyone, and I'll just add, through all generations who will believe in me through their testimony. And when I hear that prayer, I go, oh, man, the Son of God, while he's on the earth, is praying a prayer for us. I mean, how cool is that? And I just think about Jesus. He only said what he heard the Father say. He only did what he saw the Father do. He was the express image of the Father in the flesh. And so these are true words of God, prayed from the heart of God for us. And by virtue of that, they have to come to pass. Glory to God. So this is a good prayer. And so he's praying for us. I think about, oh man, the Son of God praying for us, looking through the ages, thinking about the church and other generations, those that would all be born, you know, as a result of the cross and his resurrection that was getting ready to happen. And he's praying for them. He goes, he's praying for us. I pray that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And right there, that revelation of this oneness that Jesus is praying for, it, it actually, it's far grander than what we really imagine, what we really understand. Let me read the rest of this, this portion and I'll just work us through. He says, uh, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, 
And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Is it me or is he repeating himself? He's repeating himself multiple times in the same few verses. He's saying, make them one as we are one, make them one as we are one, make them perfect in one as we are one, that the world may know that you sent me, that the world may know that you sent me. Now we can kind of get that phrase and go, yeah, he wants to make us you know, united, so just like, you know, like he and the Father are united. And, and no, that, that, that's not it at all, and here's why. Because he and the Father have never been divided. Just, I want to just get theological with you for just a moment. In the Trinity, they don't need unity because they're one. Do you catch, you catch it? To, to need unity means you're separate. By virtue of the idea that you're separate requires then that you have to be united. He's not talking about being united. He says, make them one as we are one. Do you see the difference? The father and the son share a very unique, I mean, mystery. We call it the Trinity, a mystical union of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are one, three and one. It is, it's beyond what our minds comprehend. It's a mystery that we simply say yes to. And there really are no natural explanations that we can draw and say, that's like this. We, you know, in the church, we're fond of saying like, well, you know, it's like water, uh, steam, and ice, but that's even actually that's inappropriate because he's not just, you know, three with unique uh, manifestations of himself. He's, he's, he's uniquely one and three at the same time, indivisible, doesn't need to be united. And so what he prays for us is that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And the term is the mystical union of believers. Just as the Father and the Son are one, that the believers in the kingdom, in the body, would all be one. And what I realize in reading that is, what we tend to do is we will redefine things on our terms, and we look for a unity that's sort of like, you know, nobody got mad at each other. Like it was a good dinner. Okay, Thanksgiving's coming, right? Right? Y'all are already laughing. You know what I'm about to say right now. Thanksgiving's coming, and you're going to have family members that you're not always hanging around there at Thanksgiving. And some families, you know what this is like. It's like if you can get through Thanksgiving without that one uncle or that one aunt or you yourself exploding and being crazy, it's a win. Like we actually ate turkey and dressing. Nobody argued. It was good. We stayed off the bad ones, politics and religion, and hallelujah. Nobody lost their salvation. Amen. You know, and so, and for you, like we were united. <laughs> And so we will define like what Jesus is asking for, the Father for here in John 17, in that kind of terms. Like that the church would sort of just get along, never really make anybody mad, and let's, you know, let's hope nobody ever really gets in a bad fight. And then we win, we're united. And that is not at all what the Son of God is talking about here. It's so clear that what he's talking about is a much deeper, richer experience that is far grander than anything that we really even comprehend. And I will be bold and tell you, uh, which is odd as a, as a preacher and teacher of the word, I don't know what he's really talking about, to be quite honest. When he's saying one, make them one, as he and the Father are one, I'm like, what are you talking about? 
And Paul was the same way. I mean, Paul goes, you know, the, the man and the woman, they'll become one. The two shall become one. He goes, it's a great mystery. He goes, it's a real great mystery. And some of you are married and you're looking at your spouse like, it is mysterious. <laughs> Not sure. But he goes to me and says, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. And see, so we understand there's something of this that God has made us one with himself by virtue of the Holy Spirit within us. And Jesus is praying a very, very specific prayer that not only would we be one with the Father, we would be one with each other. It's so intense. But look at what he actually attributes are the outcomes. He says, that they all may be one, as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That the world may believe that you sent me. And to me, there's something about this oneness that Jesus is praying for. He's interceding, guys. He's pouring out his guts. It's at the end of his life. He's interceding for this thing, this oneness thing, that the world would get the testimony that the Son of God has come that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Our oneness is linked to the testimony being received by the world. Are you catching me? And so this is of the highest order of importance. This isn't some sidebar. This isn't about, you know, like, let's just sort of hold hands and smile and not really act like we don't like each other even though we don't, and just kumbaya, and it's, we're unity. That's not what this is. This is a joining, a mystical joining of oneness in the body, around the cross, by the blood, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about some shallow deal where all religions are welcome, where we're just kumbaya-ing together. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about something false like that. That's completely false. This is about everybody who believes in Jesus, believes in the power of the blood, who has been born again of the Spirit and has the Holy Spirit being one, that the world would believe that Jesus Christ came from the Father. Now, if the stakes aren't high enough, let's just look at what he says beyond that. He says, verse 22, and the glory which you have, you gave me, I have given them that they may be one. And I just wanna just propose to you this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not going around dispensing his glory to people so we would have shallow kumbaya meetings. He doesn't go around dispensing his glory to humanity as a, as a small thing, as a shallow thing, there, there's something of great importance here in this prayer, and that's what I wanna actually lift your vision to, is that here he is pouring on his heart at the end of his life, praying for us that we would be one, and he's given us glory unto that end, that the world would believe of the testimony. And I don't know how you do it in your mind, but oftentimes I'll just reverse engineer it, so he's given us his glory, that we would be one, that the world would believe. If the world isn't believing, we're not experiencing the outbreak of his glory because we're not operating as one. Maybe the world is just staring at us and scratching its head and saying, you know, I could maybe believe this God thing if you know these guys acted like they all liked each other, but they don't even do that. You know? And I just go, man, these stakes are high. 
And this is something Jesus wants, not just wants, interceded for. That's the will of the heart of the Father, the will of the heart of the Son, the will of the heart of the Holy Spirit. It is our portion. And in a minute, I'm just going to show you again that he's purchased it for us, that it's actually ours and available now. And I look at it and I go, God, I don't want to live my life believing, you, believing in you in this age and living far short of everything that you've already provided for us. I don't want to just live some, some other version of Christianity where I redefine what it, what it even is, and, and it's so far short of what you actually asked for in the scripture. And so I just look at this whole thing, and I say, Jesus, I want this prayer to be true in my spiritual family. I want this prayer to be true in my experience. I, I want this prayer to be true here. Amen. And so one thing I am comforted by that if it is the prayer of the Son of God, guess what? It's coming to pass. It's not like Jesus prayed prayers that were his, he's God. He's not gonna like have prayers that he prayed that didn't, don't actually ultimately get answered. It's just coming to pass. It's as much of a prayer as it is a prophetic promise, amen. Okay, now look at this. I want you to flip with me to 2 Corinthians 3. It'll come up on your screen, but you know, some of us, we just gotta get back to the old school. Just get in the Bible. You know, get those pages. Like, I see these pages. I like them. Not a device, not a digital, pages. Good. Good for you that brought your pages. And for you who didn't, God bless you, I didn't either. I, I brought the tablet. So what am I talking about? Oh, there's something, something about being there and touching it, feeling it. So uh, this thing. When he says in verse 22 of John 17, I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one, as you and I are one. In verse 23, he immediately clarifies it. He says, I in them and you in me. The glory that he's talking about, that he has given, is the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside. He clarifies that in that John 17 prayer. But I will show you here in 2 Corinthians 3 where Paul, he goes ahead and amplifies this whole idea. And this is something, beloved, that we live so distant from, that we just live so unaware of. But man, it's our portion. It's, it's who we are right now. And oh, I would that the church, that I personally, and that we would get this, that we transform how we live day in and day out. So 2 Corinthians 3 Verse seven, here's Paul, and he's, he's contrasting the glory that Moses experienced versus the glory that we have now under the new covenant. And so he says, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious. I mean, can you imagine? And I know we've talked about it before, but just imagine 10 plagues on Egypt. The Red Sea splits. They go through it as on dry ground. The sea covers the, the Egyptian army. They go to Sinai. The Lord invites Moses to the top. The Lord speaks audibly the 10 commandments. 2.2 million people hear it with their ears. God speaking the 10 commandments. God engraves it on stone. And, and, and so they, they go through a trial in that because where's 
here's this Moses. And so then Moses has to have a second journey up the mountain. And he's before God. And he's 40 days and 40 nights on two different occasions. And when he comes back down, his face is shining like a spotlight. I mean, come on. And like, Moses, whoa. Like, the sun is bright, but your face is, I can't look. I call that light with personality. Do you know what I'm saying? It was more than just bright. It was like the fear of the Lord. And Paul says what they had, what Moses experienced was no glory. He called it a ministry of condemnation and the ministry of death compared to the ministry that we have with the Holy Spirit now that we're born again of the Spirit of God and not of the letter of the law. He goes, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation, I mean, just get the language. I mean, Paul, he goes, that spotlight was like condemnation nearly. I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh. He's talking about the law versus the freedom of the Spirit. He goes, the ministry of the condemnation, for if the ministry of the condemnation, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious, and this phrase always gets me, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. What's Paul doing? He goes, if I take the glory that Moses experienced and I take the glory that's available to believers under the New Testament, he goes, this is actually nothing compared to the glory that we have available. Beloved. (laughs) Then he says, for if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Fast forward to chapter four, verse six. He's in the same exact Uh, context. He's still talking about the power of the glory of God, which he's now going to very, very clearly, uh, he's going to very, very clearly make it very, very clear that that glory is inside of us, and it's the Holy Spirit. For he says, uh, verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's he saying? He's saying, God is inside you, man. He said, that glory that excels, that glory that makes Moses' glory look like no glory, that glory is inside you. And then I love this next phrase, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, or it may evidently be of God and not of us. In other words, you've got the power of a billion sons times a billion to the billionth power on the inside of you and it's supposed to be manifesting through you, and it's so evident that that power can't be coming from you. (laughs) Said our way, we're a bunch of dorks with fire coming out of us. It can't be from us. That's what Paul's saying. We are jars of clay. We're earthen vessels, but we've got glory on the inside of us. That should freak us out. Just think about it. There you go, man, if I ever stood before the Lord, I'd be like, ah! No, you should look yourself in the mirror and go, oh my God, he's in there. Ah! I mean, you have 
fire inside you. You have glory inside you. The power of a billion suns times a billion to the billionth power is not enough to explain what's inside of you. God himself is in you, in your spirit. If you're in Christ, if you're in the kingdom, you have God in you. The person next to you, if they're in Christ and they're in the kingdom, they have God in them. I've often boggled at this. How can I have so, and it's not like God divided himself up into itty bitty little billions of pieces and put a little bit of himself in on each side of us. No, you have the Holy Spirit in your spirit, and it's not like God chops himself up and gives you a little. No, he gives you all God in your spirit. You got all God in your spirit. You got all God in your spirit. You got all God in your spirit. Every one of us have God inside of us, not in a portion little measure. We've got God in our spirit. And it boggles my mind so often I've thought, man, I'm sitting here in a restaurant. I have the creator of the universe in my spirit and not a soul around me knows. And I just sit there and think, I go, God, I need to get the veil of my flesh way more thin so the glory that's in me is so evident so this whole place understands who you are. And so this is where I'm, what I'm driving at because this is just a sort of an itch in my own heart. I go, I see what Paul promised. I see what Jesus prayed. There's, we've got more glory that makes Moses' glory look like no glory. And Jesus prayed for us to have unity and have oneness. And I go, I just go, where is it? I go, where is it? And, and I feel like I'm getting much more clarity on this point. And so let's look now again at Ephesians 2. Because I think what we tend to do is, like I just gave that example of myself in the restaurant, we tend to isolate and make it independently about us singularly. And I don't think that's actually what the Lord is actually trying to get us to do. Yes, do we all have God dwelling within us? Yes, we do individually. But I don't think that's what God is asking or looking for in terms of this manifestation of glory. Not just an individual with Moses shining with light off of him, but a people with glory dwelling in their midst, okay? Look at this, Ephesians 2. Now, we've, we've preached this in recent days, but I just wanna revisit it. Again, remember the beginning of Ephesians chapter two, the first maybe you know, 10 verses, Paul is talking about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he's made us alive together, together, and seated us in heavenly places together in Christ. By grace you've been saved through faith, not, not of works. So he's giving us the, he's giving us the salvation message uh, saved by grace through faith and explaining that we have, we have been seated together in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. There's this corporate expression that is com it's continually emphasized in the New Testament that we don't tend to think about in, in America. And, and the reason why is because our society kind of beats against this. We, we were, you know, let's just be honest. July 4th is Independence Day. <laughs> and from there, we just get separated all over the place. <laughs> 
We, we live in apartments or subdivisions. We, we highlight now, especially in this day and age, we highlight sports that emphasize the individual. You know, we love the, the one man who's the, 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 you know, transcendent one in whatever area. We have the, the one leader and all this stuff. And the Lord in the New Testament, he's actually calling us together as a body, as a family. You can't have a body with one part, which is his whole 1 Corinthians 12 discussion. You don't have a family with just one member, right? It's all of us together. And, and this tends to be the thrust and, and the expression of the New Testament. And we're talking about in the kingdom, we are one together in Christ. Now let's just look at it again. So after he gives us that expression of our salvation, he says this, he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Now, what's interesting to me is in his explanation of what the gospel has done for us, he starts with the wall of separation between us. When he's explaining it, he says, the wall of separation between us has been broken down. And then he, he uh, made us one, tearing down the wall of separation between us, abolished in his flesh the enmity between us. The law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two. He's emphasizing that in the gospel, now just think about this, the divisions that are horizontal between Jew and Gentile specifically, but between any of us that are in Christ, those divisions have been torn down through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross. Our problem is, do we agree with that? Or do we agree with human divisions that are societally imposed upon us? Do we agree that we are one or do we agree that we are divided? Because it's very much, let it be to you according to your faith. If we will agree with the activity of the cross, we will operate in a oneness that's completely different than what the world experiences. And it should cause the antennas to go up on the people that are in the world. They go, how are they able to get together like that? And the answer is absolutely simple. It's only by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, only by the cross of Jesus, amen. So he says, the walls have been broken down among us that he might reconcile them both to God. Now is the vertical. Do you see that? First he explains the horizontal, then he explains the vertical. that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And you're kind of looking at me right now and you're going, so we get it, we're supposed to be united, we get it. And I don't think we get it, and here's why. Because he's describing that we're, he's about to describe that we're being built together into a dwelling place together 
that the foundation of the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament that they laid, that we are being built together into this holy dwelling and this holy dwelling that we're being built together in, he describes, he says, Jesus is himself the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We are being built together as a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now think about it again. John 17, Jesus prays, make them one as you and I are one that the world may know that you've sent me and I'm giving them my glory that they would be one. And then Paul says, you're being built together, you're being built into one for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Here's the thing, here's the distinctive. When the world gets among the people of God, they should come in among us and they should recognize there is an abiding glory in our midst. And here's what we, are, what we want. We want outpourings. We want visitations. But we don't understand that the mentality that Paul is pushing toward and that Jesus was shooting for was a habitation, a dwelling place for God. Hear me, a dwelling place for God, so that when the family comes together, there is a residual glory in the midst of those people that when the blind come in, their eyes open. And when the demon eyes come in, they get delivered. And when the depressed comes in, the life of God and the glory of God strikes that depression and it changes who they are on a physiological level so they are changed and set free. There should be an abiding glory on the people of God that distinguishes us from every people on the face of the earth. Hear me. Think about the story of the kingdom. Think about it. When we went from Genesis all the way through Revelation a while back, think about the story of the kingdom. God dwells with Adam on the earth, walks with him in the cool of the day. I mean, Basically, Adam is breathing glory as air. And he sins. And so he's cut off from the life of God. And from that very moment, the Lord begins to tell the story that I'm going to raise up a hero. There's one that's going to come from the seed of this woman. She's going to crush your head, serpent. And it's from that that we begin to get the narrative throughout the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who he changes his name to Israel. Israel goes into captivity in Egypt, and the Lord begins to shout, and he shouts to Moses. He goes, I want my people to come out from there, come to the widows, so I can dwell with them. This is what's in the heart of God, guys. He wants to dwell among us. Let them come out and worship me, and I will dwell in the tabernacle. And remember, when they, when they dedicate the tabernacle, fire falls, the glory of God in the midst. And he's a fire by, by night and a cloud by day, and he's in the midst of the people. Why? Why is this a, a thing for God? Because God loves his people. He wants to dwell among us. 
And they go sojourning. And then they, they, you know, they get to the place where they, they enter the promised land. And, and then they get kings. And, and you get Saul. And then you get David. And David goes, I put the ark in a, in a tent. And God can't live in a tent. God's got to live in a palace. And, and Nathan tells him, no, you can't do that. And, and, and God says, you're a man of war. He said, but your son will do it. And then Solomon builds a temple. And when they dedicate the temple, what happens? Fire falls again. The fire wasn't to so that they just have some, you know, wow, amazing time. It was because God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. And Israel goes on and they begin to backslide. And there's times where it's Ichabod and the glory has departed. And then Babylon comes and destroys the temple. And then they go into captivity and they come out of captivity and they rebuild the temple. But they're, they're weeping over the temple because they say the former glory so much greater. And the prophet stands up and he goes, oh, but the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. What's he talking about? He's talking about the outcome of the kingdom where God is dwelling among us in full glory. We go through Malachi and then we go 400 years of silence and then Jesus Christ comes on the, on the scene and his name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. And when Jesus is crucified on the cross, the veil of the temple is rent because the place where the glory was dwelling in a box is now ripped open. And I like to say it this way, the cat, the lion of the tribe of Judah is out of the bag. And so the Holy Spirit, the glory of God is not just in the Holy of Holies. Now he is in the hearts of every single person who names the name of Jesus. But I'm telling you something, it's not just so you get a nice feeling when you pray. It's because God wants to build us together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. This is what Ephesians 2 is getting at. You are a living stone. 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 I am too. We are supposed to be being built together. Why? Because God doesn't want to just visit us. He, he wants to dwell with us. See, I think we've got, our, we've got our minds messed up. We look at Acts 2 and we go, what we really need is another Pentecost. I don't think we need another Pentecost. I think we've had Pentecost and the Lord continues to pour out his spirit. He does. All they did on, on, on Pentecost, they were obedient to what Jesus said, said, tarry here and wait. And it says when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were in one accord in one place. And we take one accord in one place and we like, we make that like the pinnacle of unity. And I'm gonna tell you something, it's not. If you read the, the words that are translated one accord in one place, it literally means they showed up at the same time for the same purpose. It's kind of like us this morning. We showed up at the same time for the same purpose. Gonna have a service. And what happened? We began to worship and we began to experience the outpouring, didn't we? We began to experience his presence and our midst is beautiful. I mean, it's just so beautiful. But God doesn't want to just pour himself out and pour himself out and then the residual just kind of lifts. God wants to come and habitate. And here's my point of all of this ranting is we've thought unity was the side issue and because we've not thought very highly of it and didn't think about Jesus giving us his very glory, 
that we would be one. We thought it was no big, no big deal, not much accord, it doesn't even matter. And so then what we do is we participate in the sin of division. And we think badly about them that are not us, out there or in here. And because we, what we do is we put up with disunity and division and divisiveness in our own hearts, we end up languishing without the glory of God in our midst. Because I'm looking at the testimony of the church and I'm going, where is it? Where is the world will know that you sent me? Where is it? Because you have to have the first part that you would be one. Am I making sense? Listen, we pray for revival, and I love praying for revival. I pray for revival as much as anybody. I love it. I cry out for revival, and I'm sitting here going, what I really want is a habitation. I want so much glory on this city that no one could ever doubt that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want the glory of God manifest in the streets, and I cry out unto that end, and I feel like the Lord is putting his finger on something. He's going, son, I want to dwell in, in, in Atlanta more than you do. I want a habitation of my glory more than you want it. And I go, God, yes, yes, yes. And he goes, the problem is I've got to get you built together so I can dwell among you. But as long as we stay independent in our apartments and our subdivisions and our denominations, denomination, it just means what it's been divided into. We can't be built together. And, and this is a kingdom reality. Do you understand? The world should know the king is in the midst, that the king has come and the king is alive. But too often we look just like the world without any distinguishing factor. Our love looks like the world's love. In fact, sometimes the world outpaces us in love. Our peace looks like the world's peace taken at every little whim and every little bad Facebook post. There's supposed to be a kingdom dynamic among us of glory that shuts every mouth. And beloved, I don't even really know what I'm talking about right now. I just know we don't have it yet. And all I'm saying is this, I want to do this. I want to do this. What this is talking about with God dwelling among the people, I want that. Because I guarantee that is better than what we're already doing. Now, I think what we're doing is pretty good, but it's got to be better. Because Moses said what we've got makes, I mean, Paul said what Moses had compared to what we've got, what Moses had is no glory. I know, I know. Let me show you something. I'm sorry, I'm a little emotional. This means a lot to me. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna land this here just a second. Just bear with me for a second. Ephesians 3, watch this. He ends Ephesians 2 with, you're also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit, Okay. Ephesians 3, he starts with, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles' sake. He starts with that phrase. And then in my Bible translation, many of them, there's a hyphen. Because what Paul does right there is he goes on a bit of a tangent. It's a really anointed tangent, but he goes on a bit of a tangent. And he explains the grace that's been given to him as a minister. And he explains that his calling is to declare the plan of God throughout all the ages and to declare the, the beauty of the glory of Jesus. And he explains that, the, that the, the church is called to be a testimony to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He does that for about 13 verses. And then he says in verse 14, again, for this reason. My point is, 
The Ephesians 3, for this reason, prayer, when he talks about the love of God, is pointing back to the Ephesians 2.22, when he says, you're, you're being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He goes, for this reason, I bow my knee to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in your inner man, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the width, the depth, the length, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. The Ephesians 3 prayer is about us being built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit, and he says the key is you've got to know the love of God. You've got to know the love of God. He goes, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. And then the last verse he says, and to him be glory in the church. Do you see it's the exact same conversation. And he goes, I'm praying and I'm bowing my knee to the Father that you'd be so filled with Christ, so filled with love, that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God, that you'd be that dwelling place of God in the spirit. So verse, chapter four, verse one, same conversation. He goes, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. What's Paul telling us? He's saying that one, he goes on to the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit, one God and Father of all. But he says, you have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the Holy Spirit. Here's what we have to realize. The Holy Spirit is never divided. He's never on one team against the other. The Holy Spirit is on his team. He's united. Holy Spirit in you and Holy Spirit in me are the same Holy Spirit, and he has the same opinion. There is a unity of the Spirit that we have to get to, and it requires us to put our opinions in the back and let the Holy Spirit tell us what his opinion is. And because the church is so given to her own opinion, we divide, and we live apart, and we don't have glory. He goes, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. I go, Paul, I don't really think I understand. He goes, I just told you how. In all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. I'm of the opinion that we can't figure out how to go low enough. That humbling ourselves should be our main muscle that the expression of love that we pour should be the preferring of others above ourselves at all costs. It doesn't mean we don't ever call ourselves to accountability, we do, but here's the thing, if I'm exalting my preference and you're exalting your preference and you're exalting your preference and you're exalting your preference, what do we end up having? A bunch of people who just want it their own way. And we've gotta realize something, he is king of kings. He is lord of lords. I used to say this way, it's not Burger King, have it your way, it's King of Kings, have it his way. And what we've gotta to get to the place of is saying, 
I only want what you want, and I don't want what I want, because what I want isn't best. Hear me. What I want, my preference is, it's not best. And so when Paul is discussing in Philippians 2, and if you can get your mind around, he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, and it wasn't robbery for him to be considered equal to God, he made himself of no reputation, and he took the form of a bondservant, humbling himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When he says, let that mind be in you, he's actually talking about us becoming one, and that the, requ- the requisite is that we would have a mind of humility. Because in chapter one, he says, listen, Philippians one, he goes, listen, he goes, I want to depart and be with Jesus. He goes, but he goes, it's better for me if I go, but it's better for you if I stay. He goes, and I have this tension in me. He goes, I want to go be with Jesus, but I know if I stay on in the flesh, it'll bring fruitful ministry. He goes, only this one thing I ask that if I stay, you continue on in one spirit and in one mind, laboring together for the progress of the gospel of the kingdom. And then he goes into chapter two's conversation, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Humble yourselves. Beloved, here's what I wanna bring us to this morning. I don't have all the answers, but I know the Bible does. There is a promise of glory that we have not seen in the church, but I want it. And the the phrase that I know that I can hang, I can hang everything on is this, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So here's my, here's my strong admonition, and this, I'm even seeking my own soul, just asking the Holy Spirit to expose me, but my strong admonition to you is this, Are there mentalities, are there thoughts, words, deeds that are yours, that are in opposition to preserving the unity of the Spirit? Because if they are, I'm telling you, please, I'm I'm really, I'm begging you, would you please repent of that so we can get the glory of God in our midst? Like, really? Because they don't understand that Jesus is real. Like he's real because it's not real here. I'm making sense. Let's just stand.